In listening to your music, one thing comes very clearly to me, and that's a, a admiration for uh, your ability to focus. And I'm wondering how you work towards that and what your view on, on that topic is. I, I think it's not something that I actually try to do. I think it's something that's a result of possibly years of meditation or, mm -hmm. or just getting older mm. and listening listening and being able to uh, just kind of let go and be in the moment, be in the flow. And yeah. It's been compared to tuning a string on a violin. If it's too tight, it will break. And if it's too loose, you know, it's, yeah. it's not going to work. It has to be just the right tension. So your state of mind is it's a similar thing i think mm. if you're playing very hard to control you know to to just be in control mm. that's like tuning the string too tight and if you're not paying attention if you're not just in that sweet spot yeah it's, it's just about about that i suppose yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that makes total sense and i never thought of it as uh, yeah with that with the violin picture i really like that um were there people along the way that you got to work with where you had a similar sense for their maybe their ability to focus where <clears> you maybe learned something or, or or thought about how they approached this topic to be honest not so much i i haven't thought about that so much what, what i think about in relation to the other musicians i play with If we're doing compositions, I wonder, I study their compositions and try to figure out how they put things together. Yeah. And also, if it seems to be coming from a place that touches me emotionally. In other words, if it's not just an intellectual exercise. Right. If, if I get the feeling that they, the human being, are inside that they're playing that they're they're playing themselves really you know as opposed to showing off a technique or whatever it is sounding as much like somebody else as possible right <laughs> you know, any of that kind of stuff Th those are the things that that i think about i mean any, anybody can be in that focused spot really mm. Uh, and, and that violin analogy, I think that that's a um, particular meditation analogy, you know, mm. that read. So it's not original with me. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with letting your... It's very hard to put into words. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, not trying to overthink things. I mean, your thinking mind is there operating... It, it can't not be. It right. is there. So it's not a matter of saying, stop thinking and just, you know, just play. It's not that. It, it's more a matter of not trying to control what's happening with your mind. Because mm. all of the things that you've studied and listened to and experienced in your life are there in your mind. And they are all going to be influencing what you do. Hmm. 
you know. And and at the same time, you can't just get sleepy. I I remember sometimes when I was younger and studying classical music and I would be playing in a, a student concert of my teacher or something. And I would be playing the music, but I would be thinking about what I was going to have for dinner and stuff like that. You know, yeah. and then sometimes if, if I would get lost, if I would be playing a piece from memory and I would get lost, I couldn't find my way back because really I wasn't in a space of attention, you know, to what I was doing. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's some, somewhere between those. Yeah, but I mean, there's so many things that can grab your attention and take your attention away from, I mean, also, I mean, the personal stuff, meaning the ego and certain doubts. I mean, that's all connected to the ego. Doubts and, and uh, as you said before, people you uh, would maybe like to sound like or you would mm -hmm. not like to sound like, thoughts like that. I'm sure you've you've been through different states of uh of you of know yeah. everybody has yeah he has and and yeah and i still go through that um but again um oh i guess just to get back to the meditation analogy it's not like i'm a super uh, expert in meditation or something but you you're not trying to stop your thoughts. Again, it's not a control mm. thing. Thoughts come, you know, all these thoughts will come and you can let them come and just go by like clouds yeah. <laughs> in the sky. You know, you, you don't have to grab onto them and make a story out mm. of them. And, um, you know, Andrew Cyril, my friend, Andrew Cyril, who I've played with, um, said when he teaches workshops, He says, okay, everybody, leave your ego at the door yeah. when you come. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, it's normal to worry about those things and, and worry about how people are seeing you mm. and, and hearing you. But if you are really being true to what you feel at the moment and what you want to do, that's the thing that's important. I mean, at different times, we're, we're all going to sound like somebody else. Everyone has been influenced by other people. You can't be alive without, without that being true. Sure, yeah. And, and, I mean, out of these influences develops your own voice. Some voices are very defined and noticeable and unique, and every voice is unique, and so, some are... Well, some really change the course of the music. Anthony Braxton mm. says they are few and far between, and he calls them restructuralists. Right. So someone like Cecil Taylor will come along, and then a lot of pianists will be influenced by him, and you'll have almost like a school of Cecil Taylor. Mm. And, and they might be slightly, well, they will be slightly different, and all this. But... Um, But a few people come along who really change the course of the music, you know, mm. Cecil Coleman, Anthony, Braxton, a few I can think of, you know, mm. Sun Ra. Sure, yeah. But I mean, there are also, 
other types of players who are not in the spotlight like that and who yes. have maybe and I mean surely benefited from from those persons like that yes but they do have they can have maybe even a bigger impact on somebody else's life you know and, yeah. and none of us know what kind of an impact we're having right on, on anyone else's life none mm. of us can know that mm. the greatest gift i think anyone can give to the world is to truly be themselves because that also allows other people and and inspires other people you know to be able to do that yeah you know um, also not musicians I mean, yeah, it's not. It's just, it, it, that's a lesson, not on also on a musical level, yeah. but that can be true for somebody who owns a bakery or, you of know, course. whatever. Of course, I think you can't separate it. You know, mm. I, I mean, I I see a lot of what's happening in the modern world as, you know, as a struggle to get to the top, and and everybody wants to be the best and make the most money and. Mm. And, and be noticed and all of this. There, there are so many different aspects of that too because um, there are a lot of people doing things who don't get noticed. So some of it is luck or being in the right place at the right time, knowing people who know people, mm. you know. There is that aspect. Um, I mean, early on, I remember I thought, okay, I, I want to play with this person and that person, and um, I want people to hear me and notice me and all these kinds of things. Now, I, in a way, I care much less about that. Like if, if someone lives in a small town somewhere, Uh, where where a lot of people internationally are not going to hear them for whatever reason, that doesn't make what they're doing any less significant or mm. important. And I, I remember it, it was always a thing, you have to go to New York, you have to be in New York, right. that's the only place where it really matters. And that's changed a lot. I mean, there are people who who don't live in New York who don't want to live in New York, you know. Right, yep. And also in Europe over the years, I've noticed much more of um, much more of a situation where the local musicians are being included more. And it, it used to always be about having American musicians come over to play at the festivals. And now I think there is much more importance placed on right. on the European musicians themselves and their music. Don't you think, I mean, through Corona and the, the, the whole pandemic situation, it's going to become even more local? Because right now, I mean, I've been in that situation right now uh, where I got called from clubs where I, I wanted to get a gig for a, a long time or come back there or whatever. And now I get a call. They ask me like, okay, so-and-so is not able to come from the mm -hmm. US. So we have a gig for you. Don't you want to play? Uh, yeah. So, in a way, we also benefited from from that, mm -hmm. and, and, and it became a little bit more, especially in the, those last uh, months. Even became a little bit more local, and yes. I, I can see a time 
maybe during this pandemic where you can only listen to certain people either through the internet or being in the same city yes. like that yes. like yes. which is has its uh, upsides I, i i i'd say you know yes i was just saying to somebody um that one of the positive things i think to come out of all this is that even when um, unrestricted live music comes back, even then, um, I think it's going to really change how, uh, how music happens because in a live concert, I, I think many places at the same time will stream the concert. So there will be a live audience and it will be streamed because For streaming concerts, there's often um, a thousand, two thousand people who will be watching that from all over the world. Mm. But if you're playing a live concert and that's not happening, maybe you'll have a hundred, two hundred people yeah. in a club or whatever. You know, so I, I think one way that's changed things is is that it's going to become much more available. Music is going to become much more available. Yeah, on, on a worldwide scale i think that's a good thing mm. but but um talking about the local music again um over the past years the local concerts that i've played have become much more important to me they, they deeply meaningful right you know um because i'm playing for people in my community and i can reach the same depth that I can if I'm up on a stage somewhere in Europe at a festival and there's a thousand people, you know, you're still, it's still getting into that space. Mm. Mm. Totally. Yeah. Into that space. And it's, it's your contribution to the community also. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's similar to maybe back in the day when we started out, Uh, and you would play for f local friends who don't know about the music and mm -hmm. also your, maybe your family. And that could sometimes even scare you more. I mean, scare me more if What's somebody more? is like <laughs> uh, not more? not uh, an expert of this music and didn't come for didn't come for his interest in the club or whatever. He came for you because, <laughs> you know, that can be more involving and, and more challenging. In a way. Yes, much scarier in a way. <laughs> yes. I'm much more nervous playing in my town mm. than internationally. Much more nervous because um, internationally, I feel like well, people are coming because they know something about the music, and they'll they'll be on the same page a little bit. They'll understand. Whereas when I play in my hometown, they're also coming because they're my friends. They might not right. know anything about the music. They might feel freaked out, like, what is that? Oh, my God, you know? Yeah. <laughs> is that music? Yeah. Uh, and, and, so, and then I have to see them on the street the next day, you know, at the post office or something. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's definitely scarier. Definitely but, scarier. But also, I'm asking, uh, or I'm wondering, as you get older, does this mm -hmm. situation It changes because you you're craving that a little bit more maybe to to get into that kind of exchange between the the locals and the the not the experts of this music. Yeah, 
Um, well, that I mean, that was the case for me. That mm. was the case for me. Um, I like to think as you get older, maybe you get a little less selfish also. Mm. Maybe when, when I was studying classical music, uh, when I was still, you know, 15 or 16 mm -hmm. years old, and my teacher would talk to me about teaching, and I, I would always say, I don't want to teach. I, I want to play, you know. Yeah. Or teaching is for people who can't be successful playing this <laughs> I still hear people saying that. And she said to me, well, you're still young and selfish. Oh, yeah. And uh, in fact, the, the teaching residencies that I've done these past years are some of the most profound and wonderful experiences I've ever had. Mm. Even more so than playing. <clears throat> tell me why. Because of what develops. Um, between me and the people in the workshops, you know, I, I won't even call them students. I'll call them participants. Right. Because many of them, you know, play better than I do, do all kinds of things on a professional level. So in, in some of the cases where uh, one case in particular in Florida a few years ago, there was a three-week residency at an art center, Atlantic Center for the Arts. And there were nine participants. And we all lived, you know, on this, on these grounds together. And uh, we went to the beach together. We were close to the National Seashore. We went to Mexican restaurants and had meals together. We played together. Uh, we talked about our work. We, we made projects together. And at the end of that three weeks, I felt like we had become so close. We had become like a family. And, and we've stayed in touch, and I continue to play with some of those people. Or they come to visit. If they go to New York, they come up to Woodstock, which is two hours away yep. from New York City. And, um, and we visit, we'll spend the day together. And I feel, I still feel in a way like a uh, kind of responsibility toward them. Like when, when, when you take on some teaching work, uh, for me anyway, I, I feel like I take on a responsibility to those people. And for the rest of my life, I will feel that about those people, that, that they can come to me and ask me for help or, or whatever, hmm. forever. Yeah, that's beautiful. <clears throat> Because I mean, the 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 most uh, negative example of that is um, a, a teacher who's going to teach the student, no matter who's sitting in front of them. You know, and there are those teachers as as well who have their system, and who who will go about the system, and maybe it'll work, but mm -hmm. it's a very um, Uh, yeah, I mean, you can exchange any student and it will be the same experience, more or less. That can generate a great uh, musician, maybe. And it sure has at some some uh, points. But, but this is a more personal approach and a very, very um, engaging approach, I think. Well, it's an approach that works with improvisation. And I can see there could have to be other approaches where... There is a system or a technique that 
someone has to learn if you want to build a chair um, and you just improvise it, that you know, <laughs> the, on the floor. <laughs> so, so somebody has to tell you this is the way you do it, like this, like that. Um, if you want to learn to play Western classical music, somebody has to tell you, you know, this is a um, major scale, this sure. is a major scale, uh, you know, this moves from this key to that key and things, things like that. The interpretation is something else. When you're working with improvisation, which is what I do, or with the relationship between improvisation and, and composition or thinking compositionally, you know, or sensing with a compositional sense when you're improvising, um, that is much less clear cut. Mm. And, and I always feel like each person has their way. And a lot of what I do is just, um, explore their way with them you know and maybe make suggestions come up with exercises and ideas you know to to try things mm. comes right down to it when you're actually playing you can't be thinking and strategizing about all that stuff right you know it's there it's there it's not like you suddenly become mindless but it's not like you're practicing an exercise, you know. But, I mean, you, you're talking about it's there, but how does it get there? Well, it gets there um, by practicing, you know, or it, it's like you have to have enough technique on your instrument to be able to do what you want to do. So um, I don't want to play Chopin etudes. I like them, but that's not what I want to do, so I'm not working on that. Right. You know? And and if I were working on that I I could do it. But it's not what I'm choosing where I'm choosing to focus my attention, you right. know. Or my work, my energy. I don't know, there there is a lot of of study and practice involved, I think, in listening to what other people have done and um, analyzing what they've done and how they've done it, mm. and it, it it reminds me a little bit when I first got into jazz and improvised music. It was magic to me. It, it was like Adam and Eve in the garden, you right. know, magic. And then, then when I started studying, um, uh, but I had already studied music theory in the classical world. But when I started studying extended music theory in the jazz world and working very methodically to learn these things, you know, ninths, eleventh, thirteen, flat five, all this stuff that I never really dealt with in classical theory and harmony, you know, a little bit, but not, not mm. to that extent. Um, I had to really, really study that and diff different progressions, two, five, ones, and major and minor, and practice those for years until they became internalized to the point where if someone wants me to play a tune or a, core, uh, a, a composition with chord changes in it, I can do that. In other words, I want to be able to 
do things. I don't want to be limited. Yeah. You know, and and also playing with people. There there is just playing, and then if you're working in in say an improvisation workshop, there might be things like uh, certain ideas or exercises that people suggest. You know. Mm. Oh, even listening exercises or doing a particular thing or, okay, let's just play trills, different tempos, different tones. And, and everybody, just do that for five, ten minutes and see what happens. You know, make yeah. this tapestry of just trills. There, there are so many, you know, things that you can do. But then when you're, when you're on the stage um, playing... It's it's more like, for me, like I, I'm in a kind of ceremonial space, a sacred space. Mm. It's not that space where I'm practicing something and everything. It involves the energy of the room or the space itself, of the people listening, the people you're playing with. It's very complex. Mm. And, and to just allow yourself to absorb the complexity of that energy and relate to it in an instinctual way that is still informed by all your intellect and experience, but which you are not. That's what I, what I mean when I say it's there. Yeah, it's there, but you're not using it to control mm. the situation at that time. Right. That's a beautiful explanation. Do you sometimes have, because we talked about that thing of thoughts coming, mm -hmm. is there an upside sometimes? Or has there been instances where a thought was actually beneficial to the music? A thought, uh, a, an intellectual thought like that? Well, some ideas will come floating through. Um, but I find that Uh, um, a lot of that also tends to slow down right. uh, the response. The response. So, I don't know, have, have you had that experience? Sometimes. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I use thoughts as getting me out of my comfort zone in terms of, uh, okay, I'm only going to play fourths from now on. And that mm -hmm. from now on is very flexible. Yeah. Meaning it will only last until I'm back in the in the zone. Yeah. <laughs> It's usually uh, I feel like okay, I'm I'm lost here. I'm at a loss for ideas. I'm I only play as if I only would have one hand, but I have two hands. But this mm -hmm. is one hand or whatever. Yeah. And then I get another idea from that, which will take me out of that. So yeah, this is kind and of something uh, an example where I felt like a thought like that, an, inter mm -hmm. an intellectual thought like that, can have a benefit for the growth of the music, maybe when you're feeling stuck or whatever. Yeah, I, I think it's stupid to make rules and say, well, it has to be like this or it yeah. has to be like that. Obviously, again, it's very complex and a lot of things will will be happening. Uh, one One other thing that that I do these days, if I don't hear anything 
or I don't have an idea, I don't play in that moment, at least in, in an ensemble, you know? So it's like these situations where you feel forced to say something, to hold up your end of the conversation. Right. But you don't really have anything to say at that moment. So um, as Miles Davis said to John Coltrane, I think it was. Um, Take the horn out of your mouth. Yes. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I don't know. You probably know the story better than I do. I think, we're, yeah, we're talking about the same story and it makes total sense uh, yeah. as, as an example for that. But you just said you were doing this or um, doing this more these days. That's, mm -hmm. that's a thought that I had when, when I was listening to all of your records. Like she's mm -hmm. playing when, when she has something to say and, and mm -hmm. there are pauses mm -hmm. where I feel like, yeah, that, that thought or that idea or that, that breath came to an end. Mm -hmm. especially actually and this is something I really want to talk to you about that, that trio with Gary Peacock and, and Paul Motion yeah that sense of camaraderie and, and communion is really deep I mean mm. is really really deep in this in this trio I mean it, it runs through all of your projects but wow you and those guys that's a special bond And I was really touched today. I was listening to that record uh, again, um, that record of, of Annette Peacock's music. Uh -huh. And I was yeah. um, today, uh, I was uh, reading through the sheet music of, of her pieces. And I mm -hmm. think I might have even a couple of your sheets through Frank Kimbrough. Uh, uh -huh. And <laughs> so I was reading, I was reading along and how you guys interpreted those melodies. And there were instances where you were sharing the the um, the melodies with Gary. Uh, mm -hmm. In mm -hmm. it's hard for me to put into words, but uh, I assume there was little talked about. Uh, there was little stuff talked about who's going to do whatever. Uh, but it seems like you're all following this thread, and then it's like he's covering three notes of the melody. And you just take on uh, right after that. And it, it seems like, mm. like, oh, you got this? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be back in a second or whatever. You know, it's very, very, very much in the moment, but also very, nobody's like saying stuff like, okay, this is mine now. Taking, yeah. taking yeah. the stage or whatever, taking the, the spotlight. It's mm. like, okay, this is the music and I'm going to add here and add here or take yeah. away here, but... It's all, this is going and we're adding to it or whatever. Yeah. But that, that's something um, in the Anthony Braxton Quartet mm. that, that I learned, that it's about the music, you know, and, and what you do is in service to the music. It's not a, yes, people have solo spots and all this, but it's not, it's not about, okay, this is what I can do and, you know, I'm great, you know, and I played better than so-and-so and listen to this. It's not, not about any of that. Um, sometimes, yeah, it's just somebody's time to be heard, you know, in that way. But if it doesn't fit the music, then it doesn't belong there. There's, there's no point, yeah. But on the recording of Annette's music, I mean, there, there were a lot of arrangements there, 
Um, so I don't remember particularly the, the piece that you're talking about, but mm. there were a lot of arrangements, but in the actual improvisations, um, nobody was told what to do. Right. Know, anything like right. that. Yeah. How was it for you to, to study her music and to, uh, to play it with those guys who have such a um, deep uh, relationship with her? I don't know about your, your, your relationship to her. I, I, I didn't really um, find anything about that, but maybe you can tell me about what your relationship to her and her music is. Um, she moved to Woodstock in the late 90s. And um, I got her phone number and I called her because I had been listening to, I guess it must have been Paul Blay playing a piece of hers called Gesture Without Plot. And I really, really loved that piece. So and beautiful. So, yeah, I transcribed it off the recording. And I called her because I wanted to find out if, it, if the transcription was okay. And uh, we, we became friends. We would hang out together, and I, I liked her music very much because, um, well, as far as I'm aware, she was self-taught. Her mother, uh, I think, played in a symphony orchestra. Anyway, so she, she was exposed to a lot of the same kinds of music that I was, and yet um, she was married to... Paul Blay, you know, so she, she had this whole other side and she wrote a lot of music for him and she was married to, to Gary before that. So she was also exposed to jazz and her compositions for me are very unique. They're like a synthesis between all, all of these influences. And at a certain point, I just suggested to her Uh, I, I said, I'd like to make a recording of your compositions, you know, and I was going to do it solo. And she said, well, you know, Gary lives not too far from here. In fact, he lived about an hour and, and a half away. And um, <clears throat> should I ask him if he'd like to play? So he said yes. And then, and then I thought, well, if it's piano and bass, Maybe I should ask Paul, because Paul and I had played duos and trios over the years. Right. And um, I was very ignorant of history at that point. I never even realized they had played together, you know, <laughs> other famous groups and all this. It's, it's just um, Annette knew Gary. I knew Paul. And I thought, oh, hey, that's a good combination. <laughs> and I suggested suggested it to Manfred Eicher, and he wanted to do it, and then... Annette and I worked very much on the interpretations of her pieces, so much so that I suggested she come to Oslo to the recording session and conduct. Wow. She, because she was very, very particular about so many aspects of the music, you know, when it was louder or quieter or getting a little faster and then a little slower. So she conducted everything. And, um, that's so interesting. Wow. Yes, that's how that worked. What would she, yeah, what kind of notes would she give you in terms of, you know, was this a good take or whatever, or go in certain directions also? Or what, what would her input be like? It was more about just conducting, you know, the, the, 
she she wanted a lot of things much slower than hmm. than I played them at first. You know, it had to be much slower. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and and a lot of space. She would make certain suggestions. You know, like okay, if you're going to play these uh, lines and all all this stuff, leave breaths between them, leave space spaces, mm. things like that. You know, I mean, it it was really an incredible experience working with her, and a, a privilege. We're not in touch these days, um, unfortunately, but that's how it is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, what a special way to to write. Also, I mean, I think at a certain point, I, th- I think she, she, I think it was in an interview or an article I read, she didn't really uh, have a great technique on the piano. So this is why she wrote mostly, most of those pieces at least, uh, mostly a two part, two part uh, harmony, and oh. and, uh, but wow, what kind of colors she gets out of. Out yeah. of the piano, I mean, out of music with those two vo- voices. And I, I think all of her music um, is basically songs. Like, she's basically writing things that she would say. Right. And uh, not all the pieces we played had the lyrics available to me, mm. but they were there somewhere. Mm. Mm. And they, they were all things that I think she would sing at some point or other. And, um, and I, I think that really shows in, in her music, the feeling of each piece. Yeah. You know? yeah she was able to, to give every piece a very, very distinct vibe right from the start. You're, yeah. you're in a zone. Yeah. There was one day where, when I was only listening to Dreams, her recording with uh, Gary Peacock and, and Paul Blay and I think Barry Altschul, right? Mm-hmm. Such a mysterious piece. And I, I so love that she joined you for exactly yes. that piece on the record. Yeah. Yeah, it just kind of floats. <laughs> totally. Mm. There's a different section on Dreams that I hadn't heard before. The yeah. end. There's like a different tag or, or whatever. It's it's not on the on the other recording that I know. It's just the music she gave me. Huh. You know, I I think it's Paul Blay who actually wrote down the compositions. I don't think she wrote them down. I think she played them and. Ah, okay. I, I was going to ask you, like, how does her sheet music look like? I mean, how does she? write things down but yeah, it's just regular notated music but i don't think it was written by her mm. you know actually written by her mm, i see yeah you know um i i was thinking about something else um because we're talking about annette and space and silence and we were talking about space before leaving space right. um and not just playing all the notes you can But the other side of that is that the space and the silence can have as much intensity as as the energy playing. 
It's a right. different kind of intensity. It's just the other side of that. And that if you just like lose your space in that and your focus in that, then it's like you're just falling asleep. So you, you can't lose it. It's, it's like um, it has its own momentum, mm. you know, its own sense of um, going somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's not just static space. Mm. It has a movement in itself. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, or it's like if you're having a conversation with somebody and you just space out and then you can't remember what you were talking about or something, <laughs> you know. So, Or if you're really listening to what the other person is saying, like if you're really there. You're, yeah, you're, you get lost sometimes in what the other person is saying. Yeah. Listening so hard that you, <laughs> at some point, maybe don't, hear the words or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I love that you, that you kept that trio and, and did another recording with them. The yeah. Amaryllis uh, recording is also so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about the process of that trio, how that trio was working? Um... We just brought in compositions. I mean, a lot of the compositions were Paul's. You know, he, he wrote a lot of stuff. Yeah. Gary and I wrote hardly anything. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a lot of the music was Paul's. And I, I remember during that recording session, Manfred came into the room and he said, I'd like you to try some free improvisations with a ballad feeling and I, I remember up until that point I always thought free improvisation you know that's not something you know that's like a ballad or has uh, has these more traditional harmonies and all that kind of thing mm. and then he said free is free right free. <laughs> anything and that that was a revelation to me and gary um started playing this very simple repeating line through through a whole piece which ended up becoming amaryllis hmm. um and that line didn't change it was just da da dum bum 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 da da dum over and over and over And then I just started playing this melody that I ended up writing down afterwards because it sounded like a written written melody. But I remember at first when he started playing that, I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> And then that just happened, you know, that just happened. That's, that's improvising in a compositional way, right? That's... Uh having that compositional sense? Well, when I talk about a compositional sense, um, I'm really talking about more than that, I think. Mm. Um, I'm talking about how things go from one place to another, how they fit together. Um, 
the uh, the path that they're taking. Um, And, and also in terms of different instruments, you know, different orchestral textures and sounds and not everyone playing at the same time. I'm, I'm, mm. What I happened see, with yeah. analytics, I wouldn't, that's not what I meant by thinking compositionally, although it was like a composition that just came, that was almost there. It was just there. Mm. I wasn't trying to, to make it up. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. But but in the sense that you're talking about, yeah, that's improvising. Improvising a song in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I'm wondering also how uh, you worked on accessing or um, maybe also giving into uh, all the aspects of your personality mm -hmm. um. you know what I mean because certain players they might be uh, I don't know they always go into the same mold of dynamics of, uh, of mood of density or whatever And they're capable of creating beautiful music like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are other players uh, like yourself also create uh, creating beautiful music. But it seems like you're more you're more open. You're you're giving more to the table by by. Um, I, I think you talked about before, like showing yourself or. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, this is who I am, and therefore you're you're able to to go into all kinds of aspects of your personality. Well, um, they say that, that that there is fear and there's love, and if you're in fear, it's hard to be in love. So mm. if you're afraid of showing your true feelings, your your true music, whatever it is, then you are not going to be doing it with love. You're going to be doing it in fear of what people, how people are going to judge it and how you're going to judge it yourself. So part of it, part of that is maybe uh, working on letting go of fear, letting mm. go. You know, I remember asking Gary Peacock one time, do you get nervous before you play a concert? Because I always do. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Or m maybe nervous isn't exactly the word, but it's just like this kind of nervous energy or, you know, um, gathering your your energy, but also how's it going to go and I'm, am I going to screw this up or... <laughs> So-and-so is going to be in the audience. What are they going to think of this piece? Are they going to think it's too romantic? Or blah, blah, right. blah. All these things are going through your head. And so it's a discipline. It's a discipline of saying, okay, stop. Right. You know, be because what you want 
is to be in a space where you are being your your best and truest self through the music. Hmm. You know, um, I know I'm jumping around here a little bit, but go um, ahead. That's when, fine. When, <laughs> when we're talking about being open. I mean, there, there have been many times where I would be playing with people and I would hear things going in a certain direction, like, oh, this is what should happen next. Or, you know, they, they should be playing, um, this has happened often. Oh, okay, they should be playing a fast time feeling so that I can improvise these free bebop kind of lines on top of that. Mm. But then they don't do it. They play a stuff. And, and for... For a few minutes, I'll try to force the music in that direction. Never works. It does yeah. not work. Yeah. So um, part of it is just being open to going with where the music is going, you know, taking you. And it may not be where you're feeling <laughs> hmm. or your mind was expecting it to go, you know. So, yeah. Totally just that and and it's different with everybody play with um i played in some totally free improvisation sessions where uh the people did not want me to play modal mm -hmm. anything modal they stopped they said i i feel paralyzed when you go into that thing you know so wow. i had to find in, in those situations, another way to relate to the music that was was happening. You know? Yeah, but how do you find a way then to relate to what's inside you, or maybe you? How I you, wait. You wait. Mm -hmm. I wait. I wait for an idea to come. I, I just. I, I'm, I'm asked. Sorry, I'm asking if somebody's like giving you. A note like that okay don't go anywhere any modal or tonality or whatever but how, what happens when you then hear something like that when you have an idea like that I I respect the context mm -hmm. that I'm playing in so um, you know yeah because certain groups have an aesthetic and it, it kind of wouldn't make sense if I'm going to play with those groups. It wouldn't make sense to suddenly start playing something else. When, when I was playing Anthony Braxton's music and it came time for me to play a solo, it wouldn't have made sense musically or aesthetically to suddenly, you know, go into a Chopin etude or, <laughs> or um, you know, some stride piano thing or whatever. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have belonged in that particular context, right. you know, so also being sensitive to contexts of what's happening. Yeah. And I play with a lot of different people and I, I like doing that and Uh, what I can do in each context is different. It's different. It becomes also it become it comes from uh, 
the context is also created through the personalities, uh, not only the musical personalities, but the the persons themselves. They create a context before yeah. any note is played. Of course, of course. Um, I I remember playing with one musician when I knew that these people were like. Um, Well, I, I knew where their tastes lie. Yeah. And I had been feeling like playing some more romantic you know, music. And I actually asked their permission. I said, would, would you feel uncomfortable if I did this during the concert? And they said, no, it's okay. You know, but but I I kind of felt like I, I didn't have to do that, but I wanted, I wanted to do it, you know, mm. um, because I respected who they are and what their aesthetic is. And I guess uh, it's a kind of adaptability. I, I see it as a kind of adaptability because there are a lot of different things I do that I relate to, that, that are all uh, parts of who I am. Yeah. And I don't have to be all those things every moment. Right. Not at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's like go going into a different culture, a different country, and respecting that culture, you know, and, and adapting to that, you're, you're still yourself, but, but you're respecting the whole context. Mm. Mm. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very, uh, yeah, mm. as you said, with the cultures of a different country, I mean, that's a very, again, uh, a, it can be applied for also non-musical situations, just, re uh, you know, basic life situations. Yes. The first time I went to New Zealand, um, I was playing with a group of young musicians from New Zealand, and we were spending some time at a Maori, uh, a marae, place where the concerts were going to happen and where... Um, ceremonies would, would happen and uh, the person who was in charge of the marae sent us a list of things we should and should not do <laughs> and and for instance some of the things we should not do one of the things was don't sit on the table right okay i mean would you do that anyway <laughs> but um, Maybe some people would, you know. Sure. It has happened. <laughs> yeah, they wanted to be sure that we did not do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's good to know these things, you know, sometimes mm. it ends too. But then also, I mean, in musical situations, it can also be nice if cultures clash, or I mean, or if extremes uh, work together and create something that is... Um, becomes its own thing or it becomes its own culture in a way. 
Yeah, that's actually one compositional idea. My first trio that I put together for my first tour in Europe in the 1980s with Billy Bang, Peter Kowald, mm. John Betch, um, I particularly chose those people because they were very different. Like Peter was totally kind of European free improv. Billy Bang had a background in blues and jazz and, and all this, also improvising, and, and John did everything. And, and I wanted that, um, I don't know if, if you would call it a clash or mm. just, just like juxtaposing different contexts. I, that, that's something I love to do, actually. I yeah. love to do. Yeah. And also, even if we don't talk about what is um, expected of you or uh, what is appropriate for a kind of a context, that's what happens naturally every time, right? I mean, it's always well, a clash. It's always uh, a mixture of things when you, when you put one and one together. Of course. It's never going to be exactly the way you envision it or yeah. the way you want it, unless it's your project and you're being... The leader and, and saying that even when when I play solo piano, it's not always the way I want it. The <laughs> the ideas I think I want to play sometimes it doesn't work out and I have to do something else, or maybe the piano isn't good or you know not responding the way I want, or maybe the audience isn't responding the way I want. Mm. You know, or maybe my shoulder hurts or whatever. Right. Yeah. Isn't that, I mean, for me, it's the scariest thing to play solo. Because there, you have nobody to, I mean, there's nobody to, uh, I mean, when I listen to you play with Gary and, and Paul, there's so many moments where you just leave Gary and, and Paul for themselves, especially in bass solos. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no moment where you can really do something like that you know, uh, in playing solo, it, I mean, of course you can stop playing, but in a way like, okay, you guys, you, you've got it now, you know, or, know. uh, oh, I like that idea. I'm going to play something on top of that or, uh, yes. use that idea for myself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I yeah, mean, you, you can play mind games with yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, on the, yeah. But on the other hand, you're totally free. You're totally free. Absolutely. And you can do exactly what you need to do without considering if someone else is going to go with you or um, not want to do that or whatever, you know. Like, uh, in that situation, it's like you're, you're flying solo. And <laughs> I, I actually love that. I, I love both. I need both. Mm. Need both situations yeah. to have uh, balance. I mean, you sound very much at ease at, at playing solo, and it, you're creating so much beautiful music. Uh, I was listening to vignettes the other day. What a beautiful album! And also the sound you get out of the the instrument. That's actually something that I'm wondering also about sound production. Uh, the basic basic way you're you're sitting at the piano how you get that sound out of the instrument i don't know <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i i know there are different piano techniques i know there's a russian piano technique mm. 
uh, special Russian technique that a lot of people have studied, but um, I don't know. And maybe it's something with the relationship with the instrument, with the piano. You know, because sometimes there is a piano that for me um, just doesn't have any soul or depth. Mm. You know, and, and I find it very hard to work with those pianos or to, to feel inspired, actually, when I'm playing them. Yeah. yeah. What do you do? I just make the best of it. <laughs> what can you do? You know? Yeah. I mean, there, I think there's a sweet spot to every piano. And no matter mm -hmm. how how banged up it is, there's. Mm -hmm. But it's it's especially harder to get it on on a you know on a just a instrument that it's you know in bad shape or wasn't treated right. Yeah. Well, you know, Paul Blay liked to have weird pianos. He he would actually use those problem places in his improvisations. Mm. If you had a key that sticks or something like that, something like a strange out of tune note, he would he would use all that. Mm. You know? It was like a challenge to him. Um, yeah. I Is just remember Yeah, go ahead, sorry. I um, an extreme example, I, I remember playing a piano in Washington DC once at some festival solo and the the tops of the keys were coming off as I played. <laughs> and um, it, it was ridiculous, totally ridiculous. So after the concert, a woman came up to me and she was so proud and she said, how did you like the piano? I donated this piano to the concert hall. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, here's keys. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I try not to be rude, but... Sure, yeah. You know, I guess they didn't use the right glue or something. I don't know. Wow. Another time the pedal came off the piano in London <laughs> after five minutes, and I had to um, ask the audience if anyone knew how to attach the pedal, and some guy came running up from the audience and uh, lay down underneath the piano and put the pedal back and... Everybody thought, oh, that was that was so amazing that she... But what else could I do? I had to ask if somebody knew how to fix this. Yes. I mean, that also that takes courage in a moment like that to, to really... Uh, uh, it's not adjusting to the situation. It's like giving in to the situation and be like, okay, this is what it is. I need mm -hmm. help. <laughs> I thought it was funny. You yes. Know? And it connects you to the audience in a, in a, in another way. Yeah. And how how was the concert after that? I think it was okay. <laughs> I remember the part where the pedal came off the piano. Yeah. I guess you're not not gonna remember. Uh, um, how do you say? What's the word? Forget that. Yeah. No. Never. <laughs> <laughs> do you listen to recordings of yourself and and? Um, record yourself a lot in concerts and go back and listen to them? No, no. Sometimes I do. Um, I know that that's a very good practice to listen to yourself and hear 
certain things about the way you play that may, maybe you want to focus on improving or something. Um, so yes, I've done some of that, but maybe I'll listen once and then I'll be so traumatized. I'll never listen to it again. Or something. <laughs> uh, because yeah, I tend to be judgmental after the fact, you know, mm. and I, I, hear what I could have done differently or maybe should have done differently or something. Yeah. So those recordings are frozen in time. I never wanted to record at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I like the music just going off into the ether and just yeah. traveling definitely. I never wanted to freeze it into a recording, but what got me into playing this music to begin with was a John Coltrane recording. So I, it's not that I'm against recording. Right. I just think it is difficult. It's like looking at photos of yourself or videos or listening to your voice, which doesn't sound the same as it sounds to you. Yes. Because it's, cause it's inside the cavity of your head. But somebody listening to you, your voice sounds different. You know, so it's it's a little hard for me anyway. It's hard for me. Mm. That's a great I analogy. I mean, now having done a lot of interviews, I get used to how my voice sounds. But, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> in the beginning or as a kid or whatever, like this is how I sound like. And I have the, yeah. I had, I've had this feeling also when I listen to to myself, but I've recorded myself a lot. So I also got used to that a little bit more. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my, my voice, when I listen to a recording of my voice, it sounds much more nasal mm. than it does to me. You know, so it doesn't sound the same. Yeah, it's not inside you. You're giving it, and then it's all, in a way, like the music, it's not yours anymore. <laughs> it belongs mm. to, the, to the situation, to the context, or to, to whoever is he hearing it. It's like also when when people come up to you after a concert, um, who did I talk to about this? It's like, um, I mean, we all have, had, all have had this situation where you, you, after a gig, you stand at the bar or whatever, somebody is coming up to you and saying, that was so beautiful. And you're like, no, no, it wasn't. I, w uh, I had a bad night or whatever. I don't do that anymore, ever, because then you're ruining the experience for that person. Totally, you know, yes. I would just say thank you. I might yes. think, oh, that was a terrible night, or, you know, I just couldn't make it happen, or whatever. But if if somebody else ex had an experience with that, I don't want to ruin that for them. Absolutely. You know? just have to be willing to let go of it, you know. That's what. That's why I said it. I think it's the same with with your voice. Once it's outside of your your body, it's not yours anymore. I mean, it is still your voice, but it's 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 a different thing how it then arrives at the ear of somebody else. And yeah. also, I try to get better at that. You know, a little bit hide your feelings after the gig, <laughs> or but also maybe because of that, maybe. I uh, I always felt better after a gig in the dressing room, being in the dressing room, as opposed to 
talking to the people. But now mm. I feel like I, I want to get out and talk to the people more, actually. Yeah. Because I mean, I, we're sitting in the dressing room the whole time right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Permanent dressing room. But yeah. uh, I mean, I always need a little space. I need space before I play. Because if somebody tries to talk to me very soon before I play, I'll hear their voice, but it goes in one ear and out the other. I, I don't even process what they're saying because I'm mentally preparing to be in this other space. And right after the concert, I'm still in that space and yes. I, need, I need just a little time to transition out of it, you know, Yes. before I talk to, to people. But then I want to talk. Yeah, that is nice to meet people and, and say hi. And, you know, yeah, of course. Yeah, people always say, oh, I was too shy to come back. And, and I always think, oh, what a shame, because, you know, I, I would love to meet people afterwards and talk with them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of promoters do that a lot, you know come and talk to you right before you go on stage about mm. the last person who played this gig or yeah last time it was a little bit more crowded today it's a <laughs> little bit <laughs> That's completely insensitive sorry yes people can say very stupid things very i remember i played a solo concert once somewhere that i felt very very good about and went out for dinner afterwards with some of the promoters and people and one of them said i i really like your trio playing better ah okay yeah and i thought should i kill you now yeah. or later <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's a skill set uh, to deal with situations like that that's a special skill set i think Yeah, I mean, it's just a basic sensitivity, you know? Yes. But People I mean, for, for us as musicians, you need a special kind of skill set to deal with these type of situations on top of dealing with everything else and the music and the business side of things. Yeah, they call it having a thick skin. Right. I've had to develop a very thick skin. Yeah. But, yeah. How did you, how did you do that? I just said I am not going to show this person how what they just said is affecting me. I'm just going to be cool. Mm. That's all. Right. Mm. <laughs> wow. I really like your trio playing better. No, well, I forget exactly the words. It was something like, oh, yeah, it was a good concert, but I, I really like your trio playing Or I think you sound best in a trio, something like yeah. that. You know, and, and I was feeling kind of so high and on top of the world, you know, I just felt like I gave everything and and then like this person just gave their uh, journalistic opinion or whatever. <laughs> and that was not the right time to say it, yeah. really. I don't think. I want to picture how um, how you go about composing, where you find inspiration to compose, and what your process is composing. I mean, I'm sure there's different types of processes. 
Um, but maybe you can take me through a couple. Okay, sometimes I'll be in a certain mood, and I'll sit down at the piano and start playing. And if I come up with something I like, I'll start writing it down, you know. And then I'll look for... Um, and then I'll try some other things that might sound good, connected to what I wrote down. Yeah. That happens more with the ballad kind of things. Then other times I'll actually use some systems, like I tend to write um, lines using a 12-tone system, but not totally strict. If I don't like something, I'll change it. You know, like what you said earlier about you have an idea, but if if it, that's not working, then you'll you'll change it. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll tend to write, uh, especially if I'm writing pieces for ensembles, um, I call them cells. Mm. And um, it, it will be a particular musical figure or rhythm that can be improvised on. You know, so I'll write down these small cells of ideas and then use them as a basis for improvisation. It and makes me think of that first song on, what's the name? Patterns. Yeah, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I, I have a hard time composing because if it doesn't feel really true to me I don't like it like okay I could sit down and write out a bunch of lines and different pieces but if they're not coming from a, a deep place in me um, they don't resonate with me and I, I don't really want to play them you know or they don't feel honest that's yeah. just me you know But I, I think I have a type of brain that works better with improvisation. If you give me an idea, I can take off on that and make a whole thing out of it. But if I have to sit down and write something, um, it's like my brain resists that. Mm. I, I, it's an actual, you know, people's brains are configured in different ways. You know, somebody can look at something and draw it you know, or hear a piece of music and play it and that kind of thing. Right. I, I struggle with composition, you know. So I haven't actually written a lot. I, I really love your compositions. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, Goodbye is another one that is on that mm -hmm. dual record that is so... Mm -hmm. So beautiful. I would like to see how this is written down. I'm I mean, always curious how, how people write down uh, their music because it tells you something about what is important to them and how they think of other musicians reading them. I just recently, um, well, <laughs> my friend Chris Davis, who teaches at Berkeley. Um, yeah, I talked to her. Yeah, she started a digital library of women composers, and which she asked me to contribute things to. So 
I went back and, and uh, looked at a lot of my scores, you know, and I rewrote them all so that they could be played by other people, you know, and I changed certain things, took away some things, added some things. Uh, I was very happy she asked me to do that because I resisted. I, I didn't really want to, but um, it was a very good thing. Mm. So goodbye is one of the pieces in there. Actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. What a great uh, project of, of Chris. Uh, yeah. To, yeah. Yeah, she's doing great things there. Oh, yeah. I mean, in general, she's she's doing great things. Yeah. When was the first time you heard her? Um, I heard her at a vision festival years ago in Brooklyn, playing with Andrew Surreal. And I don't don't remember the other person or people in a mm. trio. I remember being intrigued uh, by her even back then, you know. And then I didn't hear anything for a long time. And then suddenly um, she won all those awards for Diet Tom ribbons. And I thought, oh, yep. I'm going to check this out. And I checked it out, and I really liked it. And um, Uh, somehow we were in contact and I asked her if she would send me the score or asked her how she wrote certain pieces. She sent me all the scores. Oh, great. And, and the CD and everything. Um, it's a beautiful record, right? A special record. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, especially the title piece and yeah. uh, other piece that Esperanza sings. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I saw on YouTube, actually. I kind of discovered it on YouTube. Isn't that the, the Michael Atias piece? Yeah. That, yeah. 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 And, and there's a video of them rehearsing that, you know. Yeah. That, which is, I said, wow, okay. I'm going to check this out. So, yeah, since then, I mean, we, we've become friends, and Chris has come up to Woodstock with her son, Benji, mm. who's seven, and... Uh, Yeah. What do you like about her her playing? Can you maybe go into detail? Um, well, I I like it. I resonate to it, and I think it's very intelligent playing. It makes it's it's a perfect example of compositional improvising. Yeah. I, um, she's a good composer. I like her ideas. I like her playing. I I don't know. It's hard to put these things into words mm -hmm. you know, what, like something or don't yeah something uh, I'm sorry for asking I'm, sometimes it also loses its uh, mystique maybe also if you put a stamp on it this is what I like about this person and you know oh, you know what I realized I totally didn't finish a thought that I had started much earlier on when I was talking about uh first getting into improvised music and jazz and it was like magic remember yeah even the garden and yes. everything. and then when i studied for two years with a teacher in boston jazz theory and harmony and uh, transcribing a lot of pieces all kinds of things and at that point it lost its magic for me it's like oh this is just really a drag and you know <laughs> But then the third phase was you internalize all that stuff. That's where this was going way back then. 
Yes. You, you internalize all of that, and suddenly the magic is back. Yeah. But back with a different dimension of Depth. you hear all these things and you understand what you're hearing, but it doesn't take away from the magic. Mm. Yeah. Totally. And our conversation started to go somewhere else, so I kind of lost, um, you know, the completion of that. Mm. Thank you for for getting back to that because that's um, that's something that I've experienced as well um, in terms of because I, I transcribe a lot of songs or mm -hmm. I transcribe a lot of moments that I like. Never was really into transcribing solos or something, but songs, mm -hmm. yes, a lot of songs I transcribe and and little mm -hmm. moments like a, a voicing uh, a line or a texture or whatever. And the first thing is always like, first thought is always, oh, that's what it is. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a letdown sometimes. Yeah. And then you go back to, the, to that section and then you, you, you listen, it with, uh, listen to it with that uh, knowledge now and with that, you know what's about to happen. And, yeah. and then it, it takes... You have to get back to it, but in a certain different. It it has to. It has to grow a little bit on you, or, or it has to take its time. You have to take the time and then get back to it. Yeah. And then, well, as you said, the magic comes back. Yeah, it's like um, when Chris sent the score for Diatom Ribbons, uh, because I was really curious how did she put that piece together. You know, and I said, oh, oh, that's what it was. Okay, that's what she did whoa, I thought it was something else, you know, where she put that note. She put it at the beginning of the measure. I thought it was somewhere else. That's interesting, yeah. all this. And then I listened to it with the score, and then I thought, okay, I just I just needed to see those things together. But that's it. Now I can go back to listening to the piece, and it's still as great as ever, you know. Yeah, and also... How about it if you want to, if you go back to it in a year or two years and you will have forgotten about how the sheet music looks. But still there's something, there's something deep inside you that will stay there of that experiences of, of getting closer to something and then stepping back yeah. again. Exactly. I mean, I do a lot of things in my music ensembles with overlaying like simultaneous um, things, you know, as opposed to one person is playing solo, the other person is playing, uh, just accompanying you or supporting you. It's more of a collective thing. And when I'm, when I am putting together structured improvisations or compositions for groups, I use that concept a lot. And that when I first listened to that piece, Diet Tom Ribbons, I heard something like that, all these overlays. Oh, that's so cool. And then I saw how she wrote it. And, and that was interesting to see, you know, how she wrote it, because it sounds so spontaneous, kind of. You know? What are other things that you've discovered lately that touched you in, in, a, in a similar or a different way, but things that are interesting you right now that, that you are checking out? Um... There, there is a Norwegian hardanger fiddle player named Benedict Maurse. 
Mm-hmm. And um, she's done some beautiful recordings, some for ECM. So I, I listen to her. Um, I love Scandinavian music and a cappella vocal music. Mm. Mm. What else am I listening to? At the moment, to be honest, I am not listening to a lot. It's mm-hmm. kind of, but, well, I, I tend to not listen a lot anyway. Um, first of all, I can't just put something on and then it, one, once it's playing, I like have to like listen and sort of figure out what's going on and, and that kind of thing. And so it's not really relax. It's like work in a way, mm. good work, but work. So, um, you can't do anything while you're listening to the music or it's hard for you to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it can almost make me feel agitated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's like, I, I'm trying to figure out what they were doing. How did they do it? You know? Yeah. What, what, line they just played and then I'll go back and play it over and over and until I can understand what they were doing so if, if I'm going to just put music on it has to be something that's not going to affect me that way yeah you know basically I see um, another uh, subject that I'm always interested in is how people deal with periods of self-doubt And self-criticism, which is, I think, a constant for us as artists. Yeah. Uh, and we've also already touched on that a little bit. But, I mean, I've had certain periods where I've been very, very self-critical and even denying certain things that I can do mm-hmm. by putting myself down and saying, I can't do it anymore. I can't, I can't do it. Or, um, And then I get out of it and I usually notice... Okay, it was it was I was on the brink of a new step, uh, a mm-hmm. new plateau. Mm-hmm. But when you are in there, you never notice it. You never you never remember it. Um, mm-hmm. But I I, th- I think uh, or suspect that we as as artists we have different kinds of approaches of getting out of this zone. Yeah, uh, sometimes what happens to me is I just retreat. And just don't don't play for a certain period of time. Um, I mean, this whole pandemic, I, I almost didn't play for eight months, even here at home. You know, wow, I feel like it. And um, yeah, many times I'll feel like, okay, I've said everything I have to say. I have nothing else. But that's not true because your your spirit always regenerates. There's always this regeneration. But in order for that to happen, you know, in order, this sounds maybe trite, but in order for the spring to come, there has to be a winter, you know. Right. Um, or it's like when you're playing, if you don't have an idea, you don't say anything. But there, there are always things happening in your mind that you're not even aware of. Because when I come back to playing, there is always new stuff happening. The self-doubt thing, um, I mean, that's just an ego thing. Hmm. And, um, I mean, there is constructive listening, 
to see things that you feel you'd like to change or a different direction you'd like to go in. But the complete self-doubt thing, that's like doubting yourself. You're probably imagining the judgments of other people who you hold in esteem. Hmm. Or maybe you just don't feel inspired. And then again, for me, that's always a good space to just go into the space and the silence and not try to force stuff and uh, not judge myself, you know? Mm. Uh, I mean, no, nobody is going to feel inspired all the time. Mm. I don't think. I don't think. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose that's that's true, yes. And and I think we all have those periods of self-doubt and and a lot of self-judgment. You know, that that is part of being an artist. But I think it doesn't serve a purpose. I think there's a more constructive way to do things, you know, if yeah. I mean, studying other music or listening to other music, you know, mm. even though I just said I don't listen to a lot of music, um, I'll, I'll study other music or, or I'll play Bach or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, um, Yeah, self-doubt, it's just a part of being human. Yes. You know, it's a part of relationships, too. You know, that we all doubt ourselves. Are we good enough? Are we, do we look good enough? Are we, um, <laughs> are we boring? I mean, that, that's another reason right. I think people are afraid to leave space in music because they're afraid the audience will get bored. You know, so yeah, it's just leave the leave your ego at the door, and if you're feeling self doubt, okay, I'm feeling self doubt right now. You are. That's what. No, no. I mean, <laughs> that's what you would say to yourself, you know, okay, that's what I'm feeling right now is yeah. self doubt. Okay, that's okay. Um. But I have as much right to be here as anyone, to occupy this space as anyone, and um, just not feeling inspired right now. And yeah. that's okay. That's just how I feel right now. Yeah. Um, maybe uh, maybe as a, as a last uh, topic, I'm curious uh, about certain moments i'm sure you have had these as well uh certain concerts you have uh, seen uh, you have witnessed uh where you've learned something specific or even not specific but certain concerts that that still help you that still are being played within you that mm-hmm. still resonate with you to this day that you can in an instant go back to it and have that experience again and get from it what uh, 
what you need from it and even something else? Um, well, maybe the strongest example of that is many years ago, I heard Abdullah Ibrahim, who at that time he went by the name Dollar Brand right. uh, at the Creative Music Studio in Woodstock, New York. He played a solo concert that just affected me so deeply. I mean, his music affects me very, very deeply. And uh, the experience of being there and hearing him personally in this small room, you know, with a small audience, it was like a transmission, mm. very strong transmission. And I don't remember exactly what he played, but I remember the feeling of hearing it. Um, and, and then uh, more recently... Joe Lovano played a concert up here near Woodstock and Frank Kimbrough was playing piano and I felt like um, I felt very affected by his playing and that I learned something from listening to him you know um, that I'm integrating into my playing which I had something to do with a kind of simplicity and a, a use of the lower part of the piano, which mm. I don't always use as much when I'm playing Joe's music. So I, I felt like I learned a lot from him um, that I'm going to take into the future of, of playing in that group of Joe's. And, you know, um, not that I'm trying to play like him, but sure. it made it made made me want to expand the dimensions of what I'd been doing, things like that. But, but that Dollar Brand concert, that was, that was it for me, you know, the most incredible. Hmm. What about you? <laughs> um, well, a, a lot of special moments and also tiny moments in concerts mm -hmm. um, I would dare to say it might even never be the whole concert it might be certain moments that are peaks or it's like you 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 don't say I'm always I'm always happy or mm -hmm. you're I'm always um, what's the word in English uh Yeah, there's there's moments of happiness, but you're never happy for the whole time, right? Yeah, yeah. What's but the German? Maybe you know it. Glücklich. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Happiness. Hap happiness. Okay. Sometimes happy sounds a little bit dull. I don't know why, but just for me as a... <laughs> because you always, you know... You learn this new language as a as a teenager. And it's always happy birthday or whatever. It sounds like it, it's a cliche. But it is kind of happiness. Glücklich. Yeah. It's, it's not, to me, it doesn't have the feeling of like a profound, it's a kind of light thing, right. isn't it? Sort of. Yeah. Um, But also Glück can luck. be, it, it yeah. can be luck, but also can be. It can be something deep and, and fulfilling. Mm. Anyway, the, the point I'm trying to make is, is 
that is tiny moments in these mm -hmm. concerts that, that reach a certain deeper part of yourself, yes. the soul, I, I would say. Yeah. And you take something away that will stay there. And I was really touched by what you said about you don't remember the music, mm -hmm. but you remember the feeling. Yeah. Oh, yes. Then I could say a couple other things. Um, listening to McCoy Tyner play one time um, in New York at Sweet Basil, a club called Sweet Basil, yeah. which I think doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, um, and I remember I was thinking about going to hear him and I thought, well, do I need to do that? You know, it's going to be like all these fourth chords and all this stuff I've, I've <laughs> heard before and everything but I went and when I went I was sitting there and I thought this is so far beyond fourth chords or whatever it is it's about his energy getting back to that again he was transmitting his energy and it was so powerful and I sat there thinking how arrogant of me thinking oh I've heard this before and you know I don't need to because I hadn't gotten that energy transmission before it was so powerful right. and so beyond just the analysis of what you know exactly what he was doing um there was another moment in a fred frith concert somewhere at some festival i think in finland um and eva bitova the czech violinist singer eva bitova mm -hmm. was singing and playing violin with him, and they did an encore. And she sang the most beautiful, like otherworldly um, improvisation, very high. And I will always remember that, you know, yeah. particular thing that she did. Um, so, yeah, I guess there, there have been a lot of moments like that, a lot of moments. Yeah. Mm hmm. I mean, I'm still touched, <laughs> still trying to to hold on to what you just said about the uh, Abdullah Ibrahim concert, that you don't remember mm -hmm. the music, but you remember the feeling. And isn't that what yeah. we uh, as musicians want? Yeah. I mean, who cares about fourth chords? Who cares about harmony or melody or whatever? That's something that interests us on a, on a maybe intellectual level and we like the sound of it yeah but still if it doesn't touch us if it doesn't touch us or if it doesn't reach us who cares oh no it's... i mean i just recently oh sorry no no go ahead um i i just recently listened uh, heard a recording of glenn gould playing some some bach um preludes and fugues actually yeah at somebody's house. And I, I remember being just so affected by it, you know? Yeah. And when you, when you said the fourth chord, um, I mean, when I prepare for these interviews, I listen to the music of that specific person that I have mm -hmm. been listening. I've, I've never talked to somebody who I don't know. Yeah. It's, I have to be a fan because I'm not a journalist. I have to be, a deep admirer, a fan, and I have to be um, 
I have to have other questions that I haven't heard in interviews before because I've mm -hmm. listened to a lot of interviews of you. I'm asking you things that I haven't heard before or that are of personal interest to me. Yeah, um, questions, wonderful questions. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, but uh, why would why am I saying this? And I, I wasn't uh, fishing for compliments, by the way. Um, no, the thing is, was I've listened to a lot of interviews in, in, in the past days of you. And you told in a lot of interviews, uh, you talked about that experience of, of listening to, to A Love Supreme by, um, by John Coltrane. Mm -hmm. And how you were influenced by, by that music, mm -hmm. and also McCoy and 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 um, there's this record of yours playing John Coltrane's music. But um, how should I say this? In in the Annette Peacock record, mm -hmm. I don't remember which tune it was, but there's a certain moment where it it, it reaches a fourth chord. Mm -hmm. The composition reaches from being two-part harmony to mm -hmm. a three-part thing, playing two perfect fours on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And it resonated with me in a diff different level because I had, I had to think of McCoy because of mm -hmm. that cliche of the, mm -hmm. we always think of fourth chords when we think of McCoy, although he's so yeah. much more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, yeah. Could, I could see with all the research that I did or with all the interviews and, and all the, I could see in that fourth chord how you play it. Mm -hmm. I could feel the love for, for him, although you might have not felt it yourself in that moment, but I, I can connect it to that, you know. Yeah. And you know that um, Coltrane recording, uh, I always say what grabbed me besides the music was the spirit that came through, the love and the spiritual something <laughs> yeah. that came through, came out of that recording and changed my life, basically. Changed my life. So, yeah, I think music has that power. I think, I think the arts have that power. You know, I've... Right. I'm very affected by visual art, and I felt that standing in front of certain pieces of art. And um, yeah, I think that's what it comes to. I mean, with all the arts, the the memories of it may fade away. I mean, of the actual of the content, mm -hmm. but the feeling is that what what will stay. Yeah, I, I've been watching, I'm also very into dance, and I used to work a lot with dancers and play for dance classes and stuff. Um, and I've been watching earlier on in the pandemic, I, I watched a whole dance festival online from Jacob's Pillow mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. And uh, there was a Finnish choreographer, Tero Saarinen. Mm -hmm. I don't know who knows him, but... Uh, and he did this like amazing piece about a group called the Shakers in in the U.S. I mean, they they lived like a very simple life, and the men and women separated, and uh, they didn't have children, so they eventually died out. Mm. But um, 
you know, and, and I think like when they would sit in the dining room, they had to have a certain space between each person. It was like measured out, you know, so many inches between each person, very structured uh, kind of thing. They would hang their chairs up on the wall. Oh. So the, the floors were like clear. I, I, I don't know, all kinds of interesting things. He did a piece about them. Hmm. That, that is just so incredible, so incredible. It affected me so deeply. It was so beautiful. You know? Wow. So there, there's so much out there. There's so much, so much. I mean, the, the human spirit, I think, can be the most beautiful thing and the most awful thing. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of awful things, especially here, I have to say. Mm. You know, but, um, yeah. It's very interesting. It can be the most terrible and the most beautiful all together. Right. It's it's upon each individual to make to make the decision or to to work towards the better aspects of of their personality or work on the on the not so good aspects of their personality and then try to contribute Yeah, I really do feel, you know, if we can connect with our center, you know, of who we really are as human beings, that those things we don't have to work on as much. We can be aware. We can we can cultivate being aware of things about ourselves. But, you know, connecting with a deeper aspect of who, what we are, you know, Not who we are, even, mm. but what we are. Um, I, I think the better things will come out of that. I think. I hope. Anyway, we should take. We should all take that to heart. What you just said, um, and I. I want to thank you for for doing this with me. This has been a, a great pleasure. <laughs>